We are nearing the end of our study of Nehemiah. Today we're going to cover chapter 10, 11, and 12. Wow. Okay? If you've looked ahead, you know why we're going to be covering 10, 11, and 12. But uh, this is how I kind of envision uh, what we're going to be doing to finish our study. I've given you a handout. There are two sides to it. You'll be looking at uh, this side first and then the map second. Um, I, I really think we can get through this today. And then next week, I'd like to cover chapter 13, the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah, and then look at the leadership principles that we can discern from our study of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, then that'll kind of clear. I don't know if we can get all of that done in two weeks, but we'll be very close. All right, are you ready to get started? We're going to do three chapters today. We'll see. Chapter 10 is where we're going to start, and then um, we'll go into 11, and I'll refer to those handouts that I gave you. Let's quickly review, if you haven't been here for a week or two, um, the, the, the wall around Jerusalem is completed, Jerusalem is secure, um, Nehemiah has uh, become the governor of the province, accountable to the king in, in Persia, in Susa. And now what has happened is you had this ma major, major revival, which we talked about in chapter 8. We spent quite a bit of time, almost two, two, two class hours on that. I think it's one of the most significant chapters in the Bible because the people of Judah are now people of the book. They are focused on the, the, the book, the wall. And what's happening now in chapters 9 and 10 is they are renewed after that spiritual revival they're now uh, renewing their covenant with God. And this is very important uh, for you and me. It may, mean, you know, it may not be something that really gets you excited, but it's really important to understand following the, the spiritual renewal and spiritual revival and spiritual commitment personally to the Lord. And this, this is personal. These people are personally doing this. There's now the desire to renew their covenantal relationship with God. And the Abrahamic covenant defines their relationship. The Mosaic covenant explains how their relationship with God unfolds. Another way of putting it is the Mosaic covenant defines how they can walk with God. Not only in the sacrificial system, which I think you're all, for the most part, familiar with, that's how God atoned for their sins. Atone means to cover for their sins. Then there's all of the ceremonial laws that deal with every aspect of their lives. And, and then there's the civil law, because this is a theocracy. God is ruling them. Now it's ruling. he is ruling them through the priesthood, because there is no monarchy. The monarchy is not restored when they come back, as you know. So that we are at this point is a significant turning point, because these folks are turning their back on what their ancestors had done in going into idolatry and messing with the gods that, that their, their, their ancestors had dabbled in, what Jeremiah calls spiritual adultery. And they're recommitting themselves <clears throat> both individually and as a nation to their relationship to God. And therefore, recommitting themselves to the Mosaic Covenant. Walking with God according to the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. And so, I mean, that's important, because remember, the Abrahamic Covenant defines their relationship. It's an unconditional, unilateral relationship with God. He is the one who decreed that. The Mosaic Covenant is how they walk with God. And so you, you have this really, really marvelous commitment on the part of these, these exiles, somewhere in the neighborhood of 55, 60,000 of them, committing themselves to obedience. And so last time, we very briefly did this in chapters 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, I think it is, you have the various groups that made up the exiles, their leaders putting their seal on this renewal. And you know, they're seal. You know what the signet ring seal? That's what they're doing. And you you see the 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 heads of the clans in verses one through um, oh, about five or six, uh, seven actually. 
Then you have the priests, which goes through the next several verses. Then you have the chiefs of the family, verse 14 and following, where it lists all the heads of the families. Because the organization of Israel is tribe, clan, families. That's how the tribes, the 12 tribes, you're familiar with those. They're all over the Old Testament. <laughs> then the clans. And what's really important here, and I didn't read it because a lot of the names are very difficult to pronounce. But Now listen to me. Names are important to God because each one of these names represents an individual person. And names are important to God because every name represents an individual and a family or clan below that individual that is recommitting themselves to the Lord. And so this person that is named here in these clans, in these families, these priests, they're taking that responsibility <clears throat> to make sure that they do what God wants them to do in the Mosaic Covenant obligations and that all members of their family and so on are going to follow them. So they're assuming in putting their seal on this docu document the spiritual leadership obligations. So for you and me in this uh, era of 2020, we're 2,000 years after the cross, the takeaway from that is the spiritual responsibility we have in our families. The spiritual responsibility we have, we commit ourselves to Christ, we commit our families to Christ to lead them, to nurture our children, in the, the way Paul puts it, in the, in the love and admiration of the Lord, to model before them what walking with God and obedience looks like. Listen, this, is, this you see throughout the Bible. Whether you're in the Old Testament or you're whether some of the, the churches that Paul plants in the New, leaders are committing themselves to that. This isn't just individuals, and it is individuals, but it's individuals who are leading people in this covenant renewal and thereby covenant commitment to Almighty God. So, you know, it, it, I just think it's really neat, and it's hard because these names are almost unpronounceable in some cases, how important individual people are to God and how important these individual people are to God and you never see their name again in the Bible. But they're in heaven and someday we're going to see them. Names are important. Individuals are important to God. And so whether you're reading the genealogies or you're reading like here these lists of people, these are historical documents. That's how we're to understand these. These are historical documents of, of people recommitting themselves in a covenant relationship with God. So that's all I have to say about that. But what I said, I think, is important to you if you understand that. Because most people skip over these. And I, I, I agree, it's okay, I guess. But when you're skipping over them, you're not missing why they're there. Got it? Okay. Now, verse 28 and following. I, I want to slow down a little bit here, and then once we're done with this, we'll pick up speed again. But the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who had separated from themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, who have knowledge and understanding, probably referring to children, who do have a level of understanding, we used to call that, have reached a level of accountability, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Now, in Deuteronomy, this is a, this is a reference to Deuteronomy 28. Where you see, this is, this is the children of Israel, they're just in the land and so on. And what you have is in that uh, passage, and that's really what, what verse is that? That's really what it's referring to here in verse um, 29. An oath, an oath of obedience. An oath of obedience to what? To the Mosaic. I'm going to abbreviate this, if that's all right, because I'm kind of running out of room. But an oath of obedience to the Mosaic Covenant. But going with this, 
If we do not commit to this, there's a curse, which is a curse of discipline. And that curse of discipline is what led them into exile for 70 years in Babylon. So they're recommitting themselves to this. What got our ancestors in trouble, we are in the sense that they did not obey this and ended up under God's curse and went into exile for a period of time. We're recommitting ourselves to this. We understand the sin of our ancestors. We understand, and they remember that we'd studied that last week. They had entered into a confession to God for all that their ancestors had done, and indeed what they had done too. And now they're reaffirming this. This is the language of covenant renewal in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. I should have put 29 there too. And so that's kind of what this, the, the language of this that you see in verse 29. I didn't want you to um, be confused about that. Does that make sense, what I just said? That's the context of, of what it means, curse and oath. But I want you, I want you to observe the infinitives here. To walk, to observe, and to do. Now, I'm reading from the ESV translation, but I'm pretty sure that's how all of the translations translate that in verse 29. Do you want their brothers and nobles to enter into a curse and oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses' servant, to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our, of, of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes? So you have three infinitives there, or three action verbs. To walk... to observe, and to do. All right, let's take that apart for just a moment. To walk in God's law that was given by Moses, etc. But to walk in God's law. Okay, now wait a minute, you're thinking, that's a funny way to put that. In a way, it, it's kind of, uh, to walk. Why, why make that an operative verb in this renewal? Now, that's not hard, but I just want you to think. When we read God's word, we engage our minds, we think. <laughs> so if they are saying to walk, what is that communicating to you and to me? And it's communicating out to them, too, but I mean, what does that communicate? To walk in God's law. And follow. Say it again? Follow God's law. And okay. Commandments and the, and the statutes. It, it, okay. But I think there's something deeper here with that. Joel? It's active. You take a part in it. Okay. All right. Okay. Yes. So you're moving forward. You're you're walking. And uh, Fred, what you were going to say something? The way of life. Ah. Your walk is how you. When I come here, I'm walking. I make my appearance to you, and you perceive me. Being here. That's, that's my walk. Some, that's why some translations, I'm not sure if the NIV does it, they sometimes do, but they will translate this word to live. And that's kind of what you're saying. Because to walk is a normal forward motion activity of life, isn't it? I mean, to walk is kind of a way in which you communicate this is the norm of life. And, you know, they didn't get in cars and, and go somewhere. Most of them didn't have the luxury even have animals to, to ride on like, like horses or, or mules. But to, to walk in God's law means this is my normal pattern of living now. Because that is what the law of God wanted for Israel. I, we've talked about this many, many times. That the ceremonial laws that you see, not just not just the sacrifices and all of that, but all of the ceremonial aspects of the law were to communicate to Israel, I'm a 24-7 God, I want a 24-7 relationship with you. Everything you do in life, I want you to think about me. Whether you're preparing your meals, you remember kosher, you know the word kosher, don't you? Whether you're preparing the kosher meals, which you, you have to know exactly what you're doing or you're not going to be preparing it correctly. Making your clothing, sewing your clothing. Everything you do is walking with God. 
So it's not a, a relationship that's defined, oh, I go up to the temple or I go to the tabernacle or whatever, you know, once every, and you, you know, it depends on the holidays and all that. No, no, no. That's important. That's how God deals with your sin. But he wants a 24-7 relationship with you. I'm telling you, men, when you study the ancient world, whether you're studying the Babylonians, the ancient Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, nobody, nobody thought of their God in that way. As a matter of fact, in some of those cases, their gods, as they worshipped, hated humans. The humans were a nuisance to them. They didn't like humans. And they would make humans miserable because they're ticked off at humans making too much noise. That's what the Gilgamesh epic says of ancient Babylonia. One of their gods gets really ticked off because the humans are making too much noise. So he sends a flood. You didn't realize that's what caused the flood, do you? I mean, that's, that's ludicrous, isn't it? That's not ethical monotheism. That's, that's a god who really doesn't care about humans. That's not the God of Israel. And so they are recommitting themselves to a walk with him. And that's why I really wanted to stress that. I hope I got the point across. What's the application for New Testament Christians? Exactly the same. You read in the epistles of Paul, you're in Galatians or you're in Ephesians. What is the verb he uses? Walk. Walk. In the Spirit, or in, by, with the Spirit, and I translate that preposition. You walk with God. The walk with God. I mean, he, he does that all the time. It's exactly the same idea. How, how do we differ? Because I think a lot of, at least my thinking, is that this was sort of a ritualistic situation. I know it was heartfelt for those uh, doing it. But how does that apply uh, to us today? Uh, in our walk, what what are the what are the certain things that make up that walk today? You would would you say? Thanks for asking such a small question that doesn't have multiple parts to it. Well, I mean, Fred, goodness, that is something that take me quite a while to answer. It, but just simply, um, as it was with Israel, so it is in the new to- new covenant. God wants your walk with him, your relationship with him to be intimate, to be personal, and to be 24-7. Pray. Okay, okay, that's the premise. Now, the way that works out is uh, prayer, which has to be understood as not only something you do very specifically, use a prayer list or however you do it, but just an ongoing conversation with God, which Paul says, pray without ceasing. So... I, I think, secondly, is the importance of the Word of God. Third is an acknowledgement, understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. Third is the, fourth is the importance of other believers, how important it is to see you're a part of community where everybody is, is in the same boat in that sense because we're all wanting and desiring to walk in loving obedience with God. It is communicating a 20, the, the, the way we maybe put it in the 21st century, a 24-7 relationship with God. That you are not leaving God out of anything in your life. You're not compartmentalizing your life. That is, that is what religion, religion is only used twice in the whole Bible. It's only used twice. It's in the book of James. Because the Bible doesn't want us to think about our relationship with God as a religion the Bible wants to think about God as a relationship. The Israelites were to walk with God. Adam and Eve walked with God. Moses walked with God. And so we are to walk with God. It is not a compartmentalized ritual. It is a 24-7 relationship with the living God who created us in his image and has made it possible through Jesus to have a relationship with him. So that's my answer to your yeah, very I, simple I think, question. Yeah, yeah. It gave feet and detail to that concept. So that, uh, uh, Woody? Um, I must have missed someplace back here or when I walk out of this room that's like erasing the 
blackboard or something, but I don't understand about the other gods. Were there really other gods? I did not know that. I thought uh, they are. They are what they they are. They're what the Bible calls false gods. Like Jeremiah says, okay, you guys, you you're worshiping the god Chemosh or the Moabites. Uh, he's a piece of wood. He's a piece of stone. Does he hear what you're saying? You scream at him. Does he hear what you're saying? Does he respond to you? I mean, you know, he's making fun of that. No, they're false gods. I in when I was speaking, there were quotation marks around okay. gods. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. All right. I just <laughs> thought I'd send that bunny trail out there. Well, we quickly nixed it. The walk is characterized then by two things. You see it? To observe. And to do. All right, now ESV, it's in the translation I'm reading from, ESV has chosen to translate that observe. And that's good, but the problem with observe in the English language is observe can be kind of a cursory, superficial thing. You observe a sign. And then bang, you're past it. So let's go a little deeper. To walk with God, first infinitive, to observe, that insists upon what? To observe and do the commandments, to observe, what does that insist? What does that infer? What does that require? What, how do we understand what observe means? You have to know what to observe. Okay. And? Do. Well, that's do follows, but this is, I, this is like pulling teeth. You, you, what's that? You need to be able to discern, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, if, if you are to observe the law, and he lists the commandments, the rules, the statutes are all different words that are used for the law. It, it, it absolutely insists that you know what's in it, that you read it, that you're familiar with it. Now, granted, the typical ordinary Jewish person at this time or into much of, their, of the ancient world didn't have their own personal copy of the law. It was, you know, everything was hand copied. That was too expensive. But the Levites, and that's why you're going to read about them in the next chapter, the Levites were the important strategic person. Because in ancient Israel, no, once they settled in the land, no Jew was more than 10 miles from the Levitical city. The Levitical city is where you were taught the law. They read it to you. They taught it to you. They explained. That's the Levite responsibility. They not only administer the sacrifices, that's also what they were supposed to be. That's why when Joshua settled the land and they organized all the land grants and everything, there were Levitical cities. you remember those? That's in the book of Joshua. Yeah. Levitical cities. What were they? Because the Levites didn't get a land grant. Their responsibility was to administer all the sacrifices and to teach the people the law. And that's why he organized these, these Levitical cities, so many on the east side of the Jordan, so many on the west side of the Jordan, so that every Israelite was less than 10 miles from the Levitical city. But that required two things. Number one, that the Levites were going to do what they were supposed to do. And number two, you would go and hear the law taught. So to observe means that you are beginning to come to terms with what God has revealed. You're hearing it. You're, you're talking about it. You're thinking about it. You're applying it so that it then leads to obedience to do. And so I mean, just love how I really do. I really love how this is laid out in, in verse, um, verse 28. Because and 29, because what is being stated here is still applicable to you and me. These are New Testament words. This isn't the Old Covenant. But these are New Testament words. To walk with God, to observe and understand and read and internalize what God has said, and to obey it. James says in his little epistle, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. 
Where's that come from? That's right out of the Old Testament. But now we're in the New Covenant. Now I'm getting, I'm preaching now more than teaching, but I, I want you to, don't quickly pass over this very important verse. They are renewing their covenant relationship with the living God to walk with him. Their, ancestors, their ancestors didn't do that. Their ancestors were trying to mix Yahweh with the Baals and Marduk and Chemosh and all these other crazy false gods around them. They're saying no. And that we talked about that last week. The exile cured the Jewish people of their penchant for idolatry. They never struggled with that again. Lots of other things, but that is one thing. The exile accomplished what God wanted it to accomplish. It cured them, purged them. And they and that's you just the Levites will do this, and then later the Hasidim do the, the Pharisees do this. Observe, obey, or God's gonna send us into exile again. You're right. You're right. And so they became people of the book. How often did they go to the synagogue? Well, um, that's a good question. At least once a week. And remember, the synagogue, uh, that's true today, it was true then. The synagogue was not to, to, you didn't go to do sacrifices there. That was only the tabernacle or the temple later on. Now we're in the temple. Uh, the, the synagogue, and that's what that word literally means, the synagogue is a place of teaching. Women would sit on the second floor, it's a balcony, and the men would be on the first floor. And it, the law would be taught to you. And Jesus, remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth. Do you remember what he does? He stands up and reads from Isaiah 61. He's reading the word of God. That was. It, it seems to be that it's a cycle of that, of what they had to read, but it seems like it's his turn to get up and read because his family was from Nazareth. So he stood up and he read this great Messianic passage. Today, um, you know, they do call themselves temples, like Temple Bethel and all that. But the, it's not really a temple. It's really like a synagogue. But in, in, in Omaha, Nebraska today, where Jewish people gather, they don't gather to offer sacrifices. They don't gather to do oblations. They gather for teaching. The rabbi is to teach. Rabbi means teacher. The rabbi is to teach them the law. That's why they gather in the synagogue. Does that answer your question? Yes. All right. Now, just notice, and I'm going to be done here. Notice the terms at the end of verse 29, commandments of the Lord. That would bring to mind the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. But not only that, his rules and statutes. And the term rules and statutes refers to the greater, the greater law of God that involves all the ceremonial, but civil, responsible, and everything that goes with being a theocratic nation. Theocratic means God is ruling you. And so, I mean, it's, it's just remarkable. It, I mean, it really is remarkable what they are recommitting themselves to. Walk with God, observing what he has revealed, and being obedient to what he has revealed. His commandments, his rules, and his ordinances. So they give a couple of examples. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. That was really important. Because there weren't very many of them. There were only 50,000, 60,000. If they start intermarrying with Canaanites and Sumerians and all the others, what's going to happen to the line? I mean, this, this is not, in the 21st century, this is not a nice way to talk about it, but that's it. It's going to become polluted. We will, verse 31, people of the land bring in their goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. 
You mix it with this Israel the law. But listen, why is the Sabbath so important? If they're recommitting themselves to the walk with God, the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. So for them to recommit, we won't even do any bit. No matter how lucrative, how appealing it is, we will observe the Sabbath. So, I mean, that's good in the sense that that's the sign of the the Mosaic Covenant. Thirdly, in verse 32, we will take on ourselves an obligation to give yearly a third of the part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. That is a new tax. The reason that's important is the very last verse of this, this chapter. The very last verse, chapter 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. They are committing themselves as a nation of Yehud to maintain the temple. Even if it means, as they did, instituting a new tax to make sure that the temple of God is cared for. Because the temple is the theological, religious, and national center of their nation. And that's why Rome destroyed it in A.D. 70. If they're going to wipe out the Jews and disperse them, they have to wipe out the religious, theological, and national symbol of the nation, which they do. All right, we're done with chapter 10. Got it? I mean, the the rest, I I mean, you can read it, but it just is kind of reiterating we're not going to cast lots for the wood. We're first fruits of our ground, first fruits. This is the first fruits festival. Just reviewing the, the, the things that they're obligating themselves to. So the silence means you've got it. Chapter 11. Cover this in about five minutes. This little chart that I gave you a copy of, there's two sides to the, the handout. This is the one I'm looking at. Chapter 11. It's about the repopulation of the city. Uh, By the city, I mean of Jerusalem. Uh, Remember, we've talked about this before. When when Nehemiah came back, under Zerubbabel, they had rebuilt the temple. But the rest of the city, honestly, the rest of the city was in rubble. Because it had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And it hadn't been repaired. And it's still, now there's a wall around it, and it's protected, and it's secure for the most part, but hardly anybody lives in it. So Nehemiah is now, um, and I think I'll use a strong word, insisting upon the repopulation of the city. And the people are not averse to this. So how are they going to do that? There are two ways they do it. Verse 1 of chapter 11 Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. Nehemiah lived there. His brother lived there. The rest of the people, these would be the people who are outside the wall. These are the exiles who have come back, but they're all living out in the villages and all around in Yehud, that small little province. So what do they do? The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of the ten remained in other towns. Okay, how are we going to populate the city? This is what we're going to do. We're going to cast lots. We're going to do it by tens. And the first one of the ten, that person will let relocate to Jerusalem. So if you just use a round number, and I'm not going to do the math, but you can figure it out. If you do a round number, about 60,000 of them, they do lots one and ten. How many are going to be relocating into the city? Yeah, it's a pretty significant number of people. Then you have a second source. Look at verse 2. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So you have two sources of the repopulation. One, you cast lots. One in ten, relocate to Jerusalem. And the second are those who voluntarily. How many of you would have volunteered to populate Jerusalem? Remember, it's in rubbles. It's a mess. I was just going to ask, it almost sounds like the draft versus um, 
federal enlistment, right? So is it Well, it's, it's a combination of a volunteer army and conscription. Right. That's really what it is. So is it, is it, was the infrastructure that bad off? Yes. Basically camping out and destroyed all of <laughs> Well, if you agreeing to do this or, you know, being one of the ten that's chosen, that means that you're going to have to go in, uh, many of them would have come. Maybe they can, because there were there were literal deeds and agreements. They could go to the house of their grandpop or grand, great-grandpop, and they're going to have to clear it all off, clean it all up, and rebuild it. That's what they're committing to do. So this isn't you're going into Jerusalem and you're going to live in the Hilton downtown. You are committing to a formidable amount of work Clearing an area, again, in many cases, you're, you're on a little piece that has a, been a part of your family in history. And again, not all, but that's what you're doing. And so it's really a commitment. But it was necessary. It was necessary to do that. And so Nehemiah is facilitating this in a way that made a lot of sense. <laughs> And it gives opportunity to people to willingly, voluntarily do this, but also, and, and, and Glenn's word is right, to draft them. They're conscripting them using a, like Woodrow Wilson instituted in 1917 with the first draft uh, for World War I. You do by lottery. Uh, it almost sounds like... Uh Jerusalem contained, I mean, the wall contained, uh, it didn't contain all of Jerusalem, did it? It, it was, uh, like like I hear it described as having these people move from other cities or other places mm -hmm. into Jerusalem, it's like Jerusalem was a, like, a, like a city in a state, kind of, but, but is it? It, it's a city. It's a city. This map right here gives you. This is. We're going to look at this in chapter twelve. This is. This is the city of Jerusalem, and this is the wall that Nehemiah had had organized building in fifty two days. Okay, so those that weren't living in Jerusalem, they went out to this. They they, they let all most all of the exiles that had returned under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah were not living in Jerusalem. They were living in the villages and towns of Yehuda. It's a small little what had been part of what had been Judah or Judea. Okay, I mean that's and so he is those exiles. He wants thousands of them to move inside the city walls. So how? Yeah, I mean, you know, well, and if you look in your packet, you have other maps there of what Yehud looked like, the province of Yehud. That's what Persia called it, Judah. And th that was small, much smaller than the, the Judah of, like, when David was king or Solomon was king. So I know, am I answering your question? Okay. Hello? Thank you. Nehemiah was given permission to leave for a period of time. Yeah, it's coming up in the next chapter. That's right. Does he never return? He does return. He does return. So and the last that? chapter is an account of what happens when he when he returned. Yes. Was he able to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in that period of time he asked for, or did it was it extended or what? Uh, okay, uh, in in that when he returns, yes. or when he goes to Persia. When he returns. When he returns, he will he will be able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. When he comes back, things are in a mess again. It's it, we'll be talking about that next week. But yes, he will be able to do it. Okay? All right, now, what you have here is a summary of chapter 11. Okay? As I'm, it's all these names. But again, as I said with the previous chapter, names are important to God. And these are names of people, there are a few, no, Nehemiah's mentioned there, his brothers are mentioned there, but for the most part, these names you've never heard of. And you won't until you meet him probably in heaven. But what you have in verses 3 and 4 is a list of the commuters who were provincial leaders who worked in Jerusalem. These are people who, you know, rode, rode the high-speed train. 
That's a joke. From Ono, which is way up in the northwest, down to Jerusalem. And I, you know, I'm being a little facetious there, but it's time. these are the commuters. These people lived outside, but they worked in the city. Then verses 4b and 6, 468 men itemized who were the descendants of Judah. Then in 7 through 9, 928 men who were the descendants of Benjamin. Because remember, the southern kingdom... When Solomon died, the ten tribes of the north revolted against the Davidic monarchy. Two tribes remained loyal to the Davidic monarchy. What were they? The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's land grant, Jerusalem, was in Benjamin's land grant. So all the text is telling us is, these are some of the people who decided to, either by lot or whatever, lived in Jerusalem. Then you have verses 11, 10 through 14, you have a, a total of 1,192 men who were priests. They would do a lot of the ritualistic things in the temple and so on. Then, in 11, 15 through 18, you have 284 Levites, strategic individuals, very important. Talked about why they were important earlier. Then 11, 19, 172 gatekeepers. Because if you look, and you can look at this map, how many gates there were in the city of Jerusalem. They're guards, they're the ones who maintain uh, the gate to keep them, make sure that they work, and because like all things, they wear out and deteriorate. And then 20 through 36 documents the rest of the Israelites, north, south, east, and west of Jerusalem, in the province of Yehud, who had populated the towns and communities of the province. So what chapter 11 is doing is, wasn't he as my strategy to repopulate the city successful? Yes. And it tells us names and groups of people who populated it. But it also tells us about some commuters who moved in and out. And also tells us about the Levites and gatekeepers. And also tells us all the people are outside of Jerusalem, in the towns and villages surrounding the city. This is an historical document with historically verified names. That's important to God. God just doesn't say, well, in this book of Nehemiah, they repopulated the city and they got things organized. I want you to understand how they did it. I want you to understand the names of the people who were involved in it. Those names are important to me, God is saying. And those names indicate historically verifiable events in history. This just didn't sort of happen. This really happened. And these are the documents that verify it really happened. Jim? Yep. How would you explain, um, like, Omaha, I'm just kind of like the outskirts of Omaha. Uh, you've been over there a number of times at this time and then what it looks like now as far as population and villages, whatever, around Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Oh, there, there's hardly any comparison to between modern Jerusalem and this Jerusalem. I mean, modern Jerusalem, you have the old city, which some of this stuff still there, you can see remnants of it. But, I mean, the city of Jerusalem is massive, and West Jerusalem uh, is where all the modern buildings are. That's where the Knesset is, that's where the Supreme Court is, that's where all the embassies are. Uh, that that thing is huge and it keeps growing, but I, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. I mean, yeah, I there's no to... comparison between the Jerusalem of of Nehemiah's day and modern Jerusalem. There's You've no comparison enough to kind of have a geographical understanding of like how it was maybe perhaps back then and how it is now, and it's pretty well filled in for like, oh. like the metro area of Omaha. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you you speak uh, uh, you speak of Greater Jerusalem. You know, we speak of Metro Omaha, which you know, like really, some people include Sarpy County in it. I mean, it's big, and if you include all of Metro Omaha, you're about a million people. That's right. It is. But you know, um, so you have Omaha, and then you have Metro Omaha. So you have Jerusalem, which is the old city, which is walled and very densely populated. And that's where all the controversy is. But then you have Greater Jerusalem, which is very modern, and that's where all the government buildings are. And 
Okay, am I answering your question? Yeah, I just wanted to know if you could take us back to that time and how sparsely populated would yeah. be then. Well, what we really should do is get on a plane and we go see it. That's <laughs> yeah, really what we yeah. should do. Okay. Greater Jerusalem Today? is outside of the wall. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the old, what they call the old city, um, I mean, it's just that. It's the old historic Jerusalem. And even that is larger than what Nehemiah. I mean, the old city, it divided. When the British took over it after the Ottoman Empire collapsed in 1919, they divided it into four chunks. There's the, uh, there's the Islamic quarter, there's the Jewish quarter, there's the Russian Orthodox Quarter, and there's the Armenian Quarter. They're all different, and they're all in the old city, uh, uh, which is, there's a wall around it. But that's really not that large. I mean, Temple Mount is 39 acres, and then you have the, the, the other areas around it, but it's got a wall around it, and a wall that goes back to the 16th century. But that's pretty small. But Jeru- Greater Jerusalem is, oh my goodness, to the north, and to the west, there's not much to the south, but to the west, it's quite large. And when you go west, it's all modern buildings. Um, they're not real high sky, um, sky uh, skyscrapers. Dr- Tel Aviv has those, but there are a lot of modern buildings. And all the government buildings are in West Jerusalem. Okay? Could, could, uh, let's, let's try to do chapter 12, or at least get started in chapter 12. The first, the first part of chapter 12 through verse 26 lists all the Levites. And it, I mean, it breaks them into their various clans that make up the tribe of Levi. It's really remarkable. Again, why? Names are important to God. These are the people who are the intermediaries, the mediators of the covenant. There is no king. The mediators of the covenant, the people, Yahweh, the Levites, and the mediators now of the covenant. And so they're listing them here that the Levitical order did not die out. The Levitical order was maintained even during the exiles. Now the Levitical order is back to its function after the exile. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's very important to establish that. Very important for the Jewish people as they read it. It's very important for us as we're understanding this historically. The exile did not cause the Levitical order, the Levitical tribe to go out of existence. They're reconstituted here. Their responsibilities are reconstituted and defined because they've recommitted themselves to walk with God, observe, and do what he's commanded. And so that's why the Levites are so strategic to that, uh, to that occurring. Now verse 27. One of the greatest worship services in the history of the human race. And that's not hyperbole. That's true. Now, what I want you to do is take this map that I've given you, and I'm just going to read through. Some of this is going to be a little hard. But I want you to see how Ezra and Nehemiah, both of them organized this. Ezra's name is, is mentioned uh, where is it mentioned? It's mentioned in verse 36, and Nehemiah's name is mentioned um, coming up in verse uh, 38. So you, you have these guys organize this worship service. Verse, verse 27, and at the dedication of the wall, how many of you, when you built your churches or at an addition to your church, had a dedication service? Okay, this is the origin of that. I made that up. I don't know if that's true. but uh, And I want you to observe something else. The Hebrew word for dedication is Hanukkah. That's the Hebrew word. It's Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah is also a holiday in the Jewish faith because that's celebrating after... The Maccabeans were successful in driving out the Syrians in 165 B.C. They rededicated the temple. They re-Hanukkahed the temple. So that's why it's called Hanukkah. But the term Hanukkah means dedication. It's celebrating something that happened. Here they're dedicating the walls being built. 
At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. All right. The Levites are the spiritual leaders of the nation. They've got to be leading this dedication service. They organized the singing. David, when he dedicated, uh, excuse me, David, when he organized Jerusalem after he conquered it and put the tabernacle in Jerusalem, one of the things he did is organize worship. And David instituted singing as a part of worship. And it tells us one of the key leaders of the singing was a man named Asaph, A-S-A-P-H. And if you ever study the Psalms, Asaph wrote a lot of the Psalms because he was the worship leader. So naturally, Nehemiah is going to want to get the guys who could carry a tune, the guys who could play the cymbals, the guys who could play the harps, the guys who could play the lyres. So when you read all that, you're kind of thinking, this is going to be a noisy affair. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts around Jerusalem, from the villages of... Now, these names are, are difficult, but what these names are, what he's doing is he's organizing the various uh, clans of the Levites, and they're named as the Netophathites, the Beit Gilgals, the region of Geba and Asmavath, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They purified the people and the gates and the wall. According to Numbers and Exodus, they sprinkled the blood of the lambs. That's what it means to purify them. They're sprinkling it on the wall. They're purifying it according to the Levitical code. So they're getting ready for the celebration. They're getting ready for it. So what are they going to do? Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs. And so what I've done in giving you this sheet is it just shows you one choir led by Ezra went one direction counterclockwise. The other choir led by Nehemiah went an opposite direction going clockwise and both of them met at the temple. And so you can follow, this is color coded, one's blue, one's red and you can see it, <clears throat> the direction they went. One goes counterclockwise, one goes clockwise. They both met at temple, the temple. And so you have this dedication of the wall. God had enabled them in 52 days to complete this project. Now they're going to dedicate it to Yahweh. And they organize the singers from the Levite tribes and different clans that organize it. They get the instruments ready to play. Then they get all the political leaders of the clans of Judah up on the wall, and they organize them to go one direction counterclockwise, another direction clockwise, one led by Ezra, one led by Nehemiah, and they agree to meet at the temple. And all along, as they're walking on top of the wall, now today, if you go to Jerusalem in the old city, the wall around it was built by Suleiman the Magnificent in the 1500s. But it's, got, it's on the same, it's built on the foundation of this wall. And it's wide enough that about three or four people can fairly comfortably walk around it. It depends because sometimes it gets real narrow. But most people don't get up, when you get up, you can walk it. This wall was much wider. It was much wider than the present wall of Jerusalem. Because it's not the same wall, but it's built on the foundation of the same wall. So I mean, just imagine what this has really been like as you watch these hundreds of people. It wouldn't have been tens of thousands. It isn't that big. But these hundreds of people, one going counterclockwise, one going clockwise, agreeing to meet at the temple. So verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And half of the officials with me list the priests. Verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. Women and children rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. 
like your church service past Sunday. Right? Jim, um, you know, right here as we're looking at this map, can you comment on Christ's return and how this might um, uh, references uh, to his return for this map? Well, this map doesn't have anything to do with his Christ's return, but no, the geography is the same. Yeah. This is the east side of the temple. Here's the Mount of Olives over here. This is the Mount of Olives. This is the Kidron Valley right here. Zechariah 14, uh, Acts chapter 1, tells us that Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. He's going to return. He's going to walk down the valley. There's the eastern gate, which isn't shown on this. The eastern gate, which is walled up. A Muslim caliph walled it up. Jesus is going to point his finger at that wall. It's going to explode. It's going to open. That's not in the Bible. I just made that up. But he is going to go into the Temple Mount and then they're going to head north to Armageddon because north, Jezreel Valley is north. But, I mean, he's going to return at the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side. It's over here. Okay? Now, uh, I've got two minutes and 32 seconds left. On that day, verse 44, men were appointed over the storerooms, contributions, first fruits, tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. Now, why is Nehemiah telling us this? Why is he doing this? To assure that there are adequate provisions to carry out all the responsibilities of the sacrifices. And then he tells us, For long in the days of David and Asaph, Asaph is the head of the choir that David appointed way back in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, there were directors of the singers, there were songs of praise and thanksgiving, and all of Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They set apart, which was for the Levites. The Levites set apart, which was from day, uh, Nehemiah is ensuring adequate provisions for the temple and adequate provisions for all the singing and worship. Continuity. What just happened in the dedication of the, the wall, I want to make sure this will continue for the worship services in the temple. Nehemiah was a great leader, a visionary leader, but also a leader was to ensuring that everything would be maintained for the house of God, the temple. Gentlemen, we did it. 10, 11, and 12 in one class hour. This may be a record for this class. We may have set an historic record here today. But I, it, it naturally all flowed together. It really did. And I really, I hope we didn't go too fast, but I hope it was adequate enough for you to understand what's Nehemiah doing here. He's a fantastic leader. And we see it's an exemplary demonstration of leadership skills. And so the wall's been dedicated. Now what? Next week, we're going to talk about chapter 13. As Lyle said correct, Nehemiah is going to go back to Persia. We don't know a lot about what he did there, but he's going to come back to Jerusalem. And when he comes back, he's not going to like what he sees. And so our, our last seg section of the course is going to be chapter 13. It's multifaceted. So we'll deal with that, and then I want to surface the leadership principles that we can discern from the study of the book of Nehemiah. I don't know if we'll get all that done next week, but we're almost done. So, Okay? Great. I, I'd love to study Nehemiah. I hope it's been a blessing to you guys as well. We'll cl close it out, Lord willing, next week. So if you have any questions about the handout today, let me know. Uh, but it's yours, obviously, to keep. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for um, uh, this. Oh, I hope it has been magnificent for these men. It's been fun for me to study it and think about it and apply it. Uh, Nehemiah, it's a great book. It's one that's not studied very often, but it's rich in leadership principles and rich in, in drawing important lessons for us today. Certainly one of them is a takeaway for today is uh, ancient Israel, when the exiles community came back, they committed themselves again to walk with you. 
observing and obeying what you commanded. Those words are used in the New Testament. In the New Covenant that we are a part of, the Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us. To walk with you is still a characteristic example of what our lives are like. You're not a 24-7 God. You're not an absentee landlord. You're a 24-7 God. You long for and want and make possible for each one of us to have an intimate, personal relationship with you. That's what you want. We saw that with Adam and Eve. We see that with Enoch. We see that with, with Noah. We see that with Moses. Even a man like David, even with his sin, he walked with you as a man after your own heart. And we could go on and on and hear Nehemiah leading these exiles, this exile community, to recommit themselves, to walk with you at 24-7 intimacy with you, which is what was made possible. We're very grateful for that. I pray for each one of these men. I want them to be men of faith. I want them to be men of God who walk with you, who are serious about their walk with you, invite you into every area of their lives, invite you into every facet of their lives, draw on your strength, draw on your power, learn to trust you, learn to have confidence in you, and to be able to to really, really believe and trust in your promises and to rest in your character. So we go now our separate ways. It's kind of a damp, cold winter day out. May we go with the joy of the Lord in our hearts, and may we represent you in all we say and do in Christ's name. Amen.